Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Greetings, this is Rob Hartzler from TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today, we welcome back to the podcast a surgeon who needs no introduction, Dr. Peter Millett, shoulder and sports medicine specialist at the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado. Dr. Millett, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, it's great to be here. Today, we are going to be discussing your editorial commentary published July 2020 entitled Arthroscopic Treatment of Glenohumeral Arthritis, Avoiding Heavy Metal, which accompanies a systematic review on this topic out of Rush. Dr. Millett, you have a tremendous experience in treating these patients arthroscopically with glenohumeral arthritis, uh, and your operation is called the CAM procedure. Could you just describe that for us and um, tell us a little bit about how you developed that? Sure. Thanks, Rob. Thanks a lot for inviting me, and thanks for to Arthroscopy for putting together this podcast. Um, the CAM procedure is a procedure I've developed over the last really 15 or 20 years. Um, I had been a fellow with Dr. Richard Stedman, and he was doing a procedure for patients uh, with osteoarthritis of the knee. And uh, as I started practice, I started seeing young patients with osteoarthritis and started to think about ways that we could address their, their, their functional deficits and their pain. Uh, I noticed that many of them had pain in the lateral and posterior aspect of the shoulder, that they were complaining of restricted motion, and that uh, simple debridements were not really restoring uh, function to them and alleviating their pain. Uh, when I came to uh, Vail, Colorado, I started working with my partner, Mark Philippon, who's a well-known hip surgeon, and he started doing uh, CAM procedures in the hip for reshaping the femoral head to improve motion, and I thought maybe that the same uh, type of procedure could be applied to the shoulder, so I started doing some humeral osteoplasties uh, to try and reshape the humerus in an effort to restore motion, but also in an effort to potentially uh, decrease, decrease compression on the axillary nerve and therefore alleviate their pain. And that was kind of the genesis of it. And over time, we've kind of refined it and improved our patient selection criteria. But uh, now we have quite an extensive experience uh, treating patients with uh, glenohumeral osteoarthritis who desire a joint preserving approach and want to try and avoid uh, total shoulder replacement, which we jokingly refer to as heavy metal. In the first paragraph of the commentary, you say, all procedures are not created equal. And there's a lot to CAM. And specifically, I think the difference between that operation and what's been done before uh, is the focus on removal of the humeral head osteophytes and potentially the, the axillary nerve neurolysis. Could you talk a little bit about um, if is that true, or is that are those the main differences between what's been previously described, and why do you think those two facets of the operation are important? Well, I think that some patients have very large um, humeral head osteophytes, and on their X-ray, they 
they may have joint preservation. And I think that that um, is a space occupying lesion that restricts abduction uh, and can restrict external and internal rotation as well. And moreover, it also displaces the axillary nerve. We did a, a study looking back at MRIs of patients with um, large inferior goat spirit osteophytes and showed that the, the axillary nerve actually gets displaced inferiorly. Uh, and we, we think that that may be a potential cause of pain in these patients. So the, the osteophytes are typically um, are, are invariably intraarticular and they are something that we can address with arthroscopic surgery, similar to a, a CAM resection in the hip. Uh, we called it a CAM procedure as an acronym for comprehensive arthroscopic management because, as you know, there's a lot of different factors which play a role in the um, uh, pain and the functional limitations of patients with glenohumeral arthritis. So we addressed uh, the joint surface, we addressed the capsular restrictions with a capsular release. We reshaped the humeral head with a humeral osteoplasty and uh, directly or indirectly decompressed the axillary nerve. And then in many case, patients, we're also addressing the long head biceps tendon, which is diseased, uh, and we address any subacromial issues as well. These patients can be a challenge to take care of because they're often young and they're often very high demand. They're often weightlifters or laborers. And so patient selection is a big, is a big issue. Um, I want to come back to that and, and first just sort of get your thoughts on an issue that might be a little bit more uncomfortable for us to talk about, which is actually surgeon selection. And I, I wanted to just get your thoughts on, you know, who do you think should be doing this operation? Is it, is it technically complex enough that you need special training or a specialized practice? And, and do you think that the surgeons who are doing this kind of complex arthroscopy should also have a shoulder arthroplasty practice so that they don't get, um, you know, maybe so that they're not biased towards offering arthroscopy when it may not be indicated? Yeah, I think the, those are great questions. I think in general, I think you have to know your limits. You know, I want to try and advance the field and, and offer something to these patients um, that, you know, is an advantage for them, which is to preserve their joint when they're in their 30s or 40s or early 50s. Um, if we can buy them five to 10 years or even 15 years of time, I think it offers an advantage. But like you said, you have to know your limits. Uh, I personally do perform shoulder arthroplasty. Uh, there are many patients that come to me asking about joint preserving approaches like the CAM procedure that I just tell them their arthritis is too far advanced. They have too much flattening of the humeral head or too much deformity, uh, or there's just no joint space left. And I, I tell them that I think that they'd be better served with a total shoulder. So, you know, I, I try not to be, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat biased because I have had good success treating these patients with arthroscopic surgery and we're trying to push the, the envelope, but I've learned over the years uh, that there are certain patients that are, are better off having a well-done arthroplasty as a pro, opposed to trying to salvage something which is unsalvageable. Um, getting back to the technical aspects, it is, it is technically challenging. There are some risks to it. Um, axillary, the axillary nerve obviously is displaced by these large goat spirit 
boned um, spurs. And I, I think that it should be done by people who are expert arthroscopists, who are very comfortable with the anatomy and who have uh, experience with this. Uh, I do use fluoroscopy so I can ensure an adequate resection and also to assist with um, with just the visualization of the spur because it's a, a it's not just a two-dimensional structure it's a complex three-dimensional structure and as you rotate the arm you might think that you've gotten all this all the spur but you'll see that there's some that still remains and, and there are some that are just it's rare but there are some that are just so large or in such a location that it becomes unsafe to completely resect them so there's some patients who are an incomplete resection or a partial resection may be necessary. The CFI removal, probably it's the most technically demanding part. Would you, would you say that's true? Uh, yes, I think that establishing the posterior inferior portal to access the axillary pouch is probably the most technically challenging and then removing the spur uh, is probably the second most challenging. So what I've what I've found, let me let me hit you up with um, you know just technical a couple technical questions about about that part of the operation. So what I've found to be the hardest parts are once I've got my two posterior portals going, then getting started, which I think fluoroscopy can you know sort of help with because you're you're just looking at this big white you know sclerotic kind of surface and. I think that it can be a little bit hard to know kind of where to go. And then, but once you get going, it seems to be okay. But then the, once you start to get really far anterior, I think that it can also be difficult to, you know, get all of that bone out. Thoughts on those, on those parts of the operation? Yeah, Rob, those are great points. Um, For me, what I usually will do is I'll usually put the scope in the anterior superior portal before I get started and remove any synovitis in that posterior inferior aspect of the shoulder. Uh, Then I'll go back and put my scope posteriorly and then I'll establish my posterior inferior portal. Um, If you try and establish it right away um, and there's a lot of synovitis, sometimes it can be very difficult to see initially. Um, Another thing that I do is I preserve the whole joint capsule before I establish uh, that portal so that I don't get extravasation of fluid. And I try and do that, you know, first, really. I do a limited debridement in the joint and then go ahead and establish that posterior inferior portal. Once that's established, I'll, I'll frequently go in just with a small five millimeter cannula so I can clean up the space and then I can see. And then I'll, I'll frequently put in an 8.25 millimeter cannula, which has some wings on it that uh, keeps it in place so that I, I'm not going in and out by the nerve. And when I make that portal, I use a, a spinal needle to localize it. Then I'll go in um, with a, uh, I'll cut the skin just and just the skin, and then I'll go in with a blunt switching stick and place cannula dilators just to um, dilate the soft tissues as I put the cannulas in so that if the axillary nerve is, is close, it will be pushed out of the way and wouldn't be uh, injured. And then once I have that 8.25 millimeter cannula in there that's really secure with the wings, then I can really start uh, taking off bone and I'll usually use a 5.5 shaver uh, in the back 
And as I go to the front, I'll typically internally rotate the arm. And the, the anterior inferior quadrant is probably the most difficult to access, but that's where a lot of the spurs, the, ma the mass of bone is. So I have some long curved um, curettes that I'll use to scrape that, the bone off anterior inferiorly. And then I'll take it out with a pituitary rongeur or piecemeal with a shaver. I'll also typically preserve the inferior capsule throughout this, this point of the procedure because if you cut the capsule to try and improve your visualization or to try and see better, what happens is the fluid starts extravasating and then the nerve actually gets closer. So I keep that capsule intact until I have all the bone resected. And then that's when I'll do the inferior capsule release. Do you ever use curved osteotomes to try to get those, those far anterior inferior osteophytes? I have tried just about everything, but what I've found works best is I have some long curettes that are from a, a, a total hip set um, that uh, reach around there. And I have one that's angled about 45 degrees and I can just put that through my 8.25 millimeter cannula and I can scrape the osteophyte off uh, on the part that is difficult to reach with a shaver. So the whole osteophyte removal process is two posterior portals. You don't change to another view to complete the work. I have, I've tried to look from the front down, but I've not had good success. Um, so I typically work with uh, two posterior portals. Excellent. And then, um, so you, then you go ahead with capsular release and then is it, is every case an axillary neurolysis? Well, if uh, when I'm releasing the capsule, I usually use a combination of a basket forceps and um, a hook tip radio frequency device to just precisely release the capsule. I like a monopolar device. It seems to have less heat and it um, causes less stimulation of the nerve. Uh, the nerve usually runs obliquely from uh, medial to lateral. And as you release the capsule, the nerve is frequently right there. So I'll take a, a blunt uh, switching stick or obturator and just kind of dissect and free up the nerve to make sure there's no compression on it. It's mainly an indirect decompression by taking off the, the spur, but then also when you release the capsule, frequently the nerve is right there. Got it. Question about the biceps. Do you ever have patients who ask you to preserve the biceps for them? And how, you know, how do you handle that situation? A lot of these are weightlifters and you know, I've found in my own practice some nervousness about about biceps tenodesis and the patients wonder if it's really necessary? That's a great question. I, I take it as indicated. Like, for example, I did one yesterday in a 45-year-old 40, gentleman, and uh, I, his, his biceps was not really that painful. Uh, when we went in, he had a, somewhat of a degenerative slap tear that we debrided. The biceps tendon itself didn't have any erythema. Uh, it didn't have a pulley lesion. So we, um, we left his biceps uh, alone. Uh, if the biceps looks diseased, there's an hourglass deformity, there's a very degenerative slap tear, there's associated pulley, pulley uh, lesion or tearing of the pulley, or there's significant tenosynovitis, then I will do a biceps tenodesis in those patients. And I would say probably about 75 or 80% of the time we, we do a biceps tenodesis. You, in, in the editorial commentary, um, 
you've you've snuck in some unpublished data that you've presented now um, for sure at ASES Fellows, and I'm sure that's in a forthcoming publication. But um, but I thought it was very interesting that you have minimum tenure follow up uh, data now with only a 40 percent uh, conversion to arthroplasty rate, which I think that seems very good at ten years. And these are probably your you know this is probably part of your initial experience. Any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the question is when we first published our two-year data, you know, was the patient just coping with it because they just had surgery and they didn't want to have a replacement? Then we had uh, five-year data, which Justin Mitchell looked up, um, and, you know, we had uh, pretty good results. But now we've recently gone and looked at our minimum tenure follow-up. You know, we have about 63% survivorship. So at 10 years, if somebody's still hasn't converted, you know, they're not just coping with it. They're, they're either, you know, they're, they're likely just, they're satisfied and they decided that they can live with their, with their underlying glenohumeloster arthritis. I'm hopeful that in the future, uh, with better patient selection, that I will be able to improve that because some of those were my early series when I probably was operating on some patients that were more advanced than, than would be ideal with flattening of the humeral head, with significant glenoid deformity uh, or significant severe joint space narrowing, that now I would probably suggest to those patients that they consider an arthroplasty. So I'm, I'm hopeful that with better patient selection and that maybe even with biologics, uh, BMAC, PRP, other types of things that we can do to maybe enhance uh, the longevity of this procedure that will have better survivorship in the future. That was one of my questions for you is if you were doing anything in terms of biologic adjuvants. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, now we add, we usually will do PRP for the patients at the same time as the, uh, as the CAM procedure. Uh, I don't know if that, at this point, we don't have the, the data compiled to see whether it makes a difference or not, um, there's some evidence that maybe it has nociceptive uh, effects so that they'll have less pain. Uh, perhaps it can help them with regenerating of some fiber cartilage. Uh, but those are things that we're kind of hopeful in the future that would, that would be sort of adjuvants to the underlying arthroscopic procedure. I noticed that, I, well, I've paid very close attention to what you've published in the past for my own practice about risk factors for poor outcomes with CAM. And I noticed that, you, that you've started talking about the issue of humeral head congruity uh, as a risk factor, which I think is new with this, with this minimum 10-year follow-up um, data. And I just was wondering, what is it advanced imaging? Is it MRI-CT that you're making that decision about incongruity? Is it plain radiographs? How are you making that decision? Well, most of these patients get x-rays and then they also get an MRI uh, in most cases, sometimes a CT. Um, you can see it on plain films. Uh, you can also see it on the MRI. Um, it's just an observation that I made over the years that some of these patients that had, uh, and you've probably seen it where they have more central flattening of the humeral head, mm -hmm. they might still have joint space. They might still have a good joint space. Well, I, I started looking at those and thinking maybe those patients wouldn't, you know, weren't doing as well. And we, when we went back with our tenure data, indeed, that was shown to be uh, uh, one of the predictors of a negative outcome. 
nothing to measure really. It's just sort of if you see flat, significant flattening of the humeral head, then that's a We've come out with a classification scheme, which will be in our new paper for the humeral head flattening uh, to try and grade it. And, you know, more severe degrees of flattening, I would say, are probably not as good candidates for for a CAM procedure. So if so, let's say that you're a 45 year old weightlifter with significant risk factors for doing poorly. You've got bone on bone, no glenohumeral joint space. You've got significant flattening. You've got a B2 glenoid. What's your What's your current go to for an arthroplasty procedure for that type of patient? Is it Is it Hemi? Is it Riemann Run? Is it an anatomic total shoulder? I've been sort of an anatomic total shoulder person for my whole career. You know, I've been in practice 20 years now, and I have not seen high degrees of glenoid loosening. Of course, I've seen some, but I've not seen high degrees. We have an extremely active patient population here. I put in a cemented peg, hybrid peg and keel glenoid, and, you know, I'm careful to try and meticulously ream it with minimal reaming, but enough to get congruity and then pressurize the cement well and and then let the patients, once they're ready, get back to full activities. I don't put any specific restrictions on my patients, but I've not seen high amounts of failure of the, of the glenoid. So for me, I, I've been uh, a total shoulder advocate. I think that the first chance at arthroplasty is probably your best chance. Another point that I'd like to bring up is we've looked at, we've done a comparison group, which is not out yet, but we've looked at patients who've had a CAM procedure and then failed and underwent a total shoulder replacement and compared those with an age-matched cohort that underwent a primary total shoulder arthroplasty, and we have not seen a difference in their outcomes. So it doesn't seem like you're burning any bridges by doing an arthroscopic joint preserving CAM procedure before, you know, if that fails, you're not burning any bridges for a subsequent arthroplasty. Yes, I've been, I've thought about that a lot. And I've wondered if it may be that we don't have enough power to really pick that up. It seems in like in the knee that it's been demonstrated. I'm sure you're mo- a little bit more familiar but in the knee, it seems like having prior arthroscopy is a risk factor for complications after total knee. Is that, is that your understanding? Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to look at that and make sure that, you know, we weren't adversely compromising people for future arthroplasty. And at least with the data we have, we, we can't demonstrate that. Now with more patience and more power, there might be, but so far we haven't, we haven't shown that. So what do you think the future of arthroscopic joint preservation is for for these patients? Is it that we get better technically at removing the osteophytes, you know, maybe computer-guided osteophyte resection, um, something, you know, biologic? What, how can we improve this operation besides patient selection that you brought up before? That's a great question. I mean, I try and think about it, whether it's some type of osteoarticular allografts, is it arthroscopic total shoulder replacement? Is it some type of biologic um, arthroplasty with uh, resurfacing? Is it stem cells? I I don't really know. I think there's 
a lot of potential options out there. What I do know is that we are seeing a lot of patients, well, I'm seeing at least a lot of patients who are young, who have Glenningham osteoarthritis that's advanced, and we need some type of a solution uh, for them. So there's definitely a big need for this. And I think that with continued research and continued innovation that we're gonna improve the options for our patients. Excellent. Well, from my practice to you, we greatly appreciate your work uh, on this topic. And I've learned a tremendous uh, amount of information from you and your experience. And so thank you for documenting this carefully and for, for pushing the envelope and, and uh, you know, moving the ball down the field. Any closing thoughts? No, thanks for inviting me. It's always great to be a, uh, invited to share my thoughts on this topic. I, you know, I just, I just share my experience and we carefully track our patients. Uh, there may be other options which are better in the future or, or in the future there may be better options. There may be better options right now. Um, so I think I would encourage all your listeners to just try and you know, study your patients carefully and report your outcomes so we can all learn from each other and get, get better options and better treatments for our patients for the future. Excellent. Well, this editorial from the July 2020 issue of the journal entitled Arthroscopic Treatment of Glenohumeral Arthritis, Avoiding Heavy Metal can be found on the Arthroscopy Journal's website at arthroscopyjournal.org. 